Well, guys, we are into our third week now in our new series of Colossians. And as most of you know, we're going to be studying this book for a few months uh, leading right into summer. And I'm praying that God teaches us a lot in it. There's a lot of gold in this book. Let me tell you something. It's amazing stuff in the book of Colossians. And so I pray that the Spirit of God will help us be able to mine it out so that we can start to apply it to our lives. Um, as you know, and we've mentioned this the last couple of weeks, Paul is writing to a group of people that he does not, he's never met, okay? So he doesn't know them personally. Um, so the first chapter is a lot of introduction sort of stuff going on. And so we're still somewhat in the introduction part of this epistle. He's still talking to them, explaining to them how much he loves them and how much he, he's been praying for them. And last week we learned that he always thanks God for them when he prays for them. And we spent the entire sermon looking at what he thanked God for. Well, this week we're going to see what Paul actually prayed for when he prayed for them. And, and this is powerful stuff in, in this prayer. So let's do what we always do and let's read out loud together the passage that we're going to be studying today. I'll, I'll have it on the screen behind me and let's all out loud read it together. Okay, you ready? Here we go. And so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Well, that is a great little passage right there. Um, and Paul, as we see here, he's sharing with the Colossian church exactly what he's praying for them about. And I love that. I love that because, you know, so often as Christians, we throw that phrase around so much and I wonder how much we mean it. You ever notice that? We'll, we'll just be, we'll be talking to someone like, well, hey, listen, Tom, I'll be praying for you. You know, and we throw that out. And I wonder if we really do we really pray? You know, we're like John sharing something with us and be like, well, John, that's terrible. Man, I'll be praying for you. And we say we do, but will we? Do we? I wonder. I would like for us to be a church that if we say we're going to pray for someone, we actually pray for someone. Amen? I really want us to do that. And then actually pray. Actually do the work of prayer. Not say the little cute things that we like to say about prayer. And we have a lot of them. Have you ever noticed that? There's a lot of little cute things we say about prayer. And I know this sermon is not about this, but I'm going to talk about it anyways. But have you ever noticed that we say things like, uh, you know, say somebody's pouring out their heart on Facebook or whatever, and so in the comments we'll go, sending prayers your way. What does that even mean? Sending prayers your way? It's like, all right, Tom, i got a little prayer here. And I'm like, go to Tommy. Go to Tom. You go. I'm sending it your way, Tom. Why do we say that? But we say it all the time, just sending prayers your way. Or we say, have you ever noticed this too? Um, you'll run into someone and be like, hey, Luke, uh, you mind throwing up a couple prayers for me this week? I got surgery on Wednesday. I'm like, first of all, 
It sounds like you just want me to haphazardly pray for you. Like, I'll toss up a few little prayers for you to God. Like, what does that mean? And what does it mean to throw up a few prayers? Like, why do we say these things? It's just silly. Another thing that that kind of bothers me is that people will say this like, hey, I'd like all of you guys to join me, and we're going to storm the gates of heaven on behalf of Brenda. We're going to storm the gates of heaven. It's like we're outside with little pickets going, oh, we're coming for you, God. We're going to knock down these gates. Let's hit it, ramrod the gate one more time. Let's bust in there. And they're like, if he thinks he's not going to answer us, we're going to storm these gates. What in the world is that about? But we do that all the time. Now, guys, I'm not going to pretend that I understand everything there is about prayer, but at least I know this. Prayer is talking to our Heavenly Father. It's as simple as that. It's talking. It's conversing with our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father who happens to love us. And I know He's unseen, and that can make it difficult at times, but we don't send prayers to each other. We talk to God about each other. We don't throw prayers up to him. We talk to him. We don't have to storm his gates and try to force our way into him. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, look at this verse here. It says, so let us come boldly to the very what? Where do we have access to? The throne room of God. We don't have to storm gates, people. We can come boldly to the throne of God to receive his mercy and find grace to help us in our times of what? need. Because of what Jesus did, we have access to the throne of God, to our Father. We don't have to storm his gates. We don't have to throw prayers at him. We can converse with him. And like I said, I'm the first to admit I don't understand all there is to prayer, but I'll tell you, it is one of the most powerful things we have at our disposal, the ability to converse with the creator of the universe. And Paul does that on behalf of the Colossians church. And he's gonna share with the Colossian church exactly what he prays for, what he converses with God about in regards to them. And you know, I think this would be a very good practice for us. Rather than just to say, hey, Tommy, I'll be praying for you. Why don't we send Tom a text or an email or write it out, the prayer we actually prayed for them. Send it to him and say, here's what I prayed for you this morning. I think that would be a powerful thing to do. Well, this passage is exactly that. Paul is doing that. And I have to say, this is actually a very precious thing that we're about to study. Uh, We are peering into the prayer of a great and amazing saint of God, the Apostle Paul. And we're gonna see what he prayed for this little church. And I would venture to say that this passage um, shares with us the true essence of what prayer requests for each other should look like. And it probably does it better than any other passage in the New Testament. So this is, this is what we should be praying for each other. And this is Paul's prayer, kind of paraphrase. He says, God, I'm asking that this little church in Colossae would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom, in all spiritual understanding, so that they could walk in a manner worthy of you fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and and increasing in the knowledge of you, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might. For all endurance and for patience with joy, giving thanks to you, Father, the one who's qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And you, Father, you're the one who delivered them from the domain of darkness and you've transferred them into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom they have redemption and in whom they have forgiveness of sin. This is Paul's prayer. And let me tell you, this is a powerful prayer. So let's unpack this prayer. Let's see what Paul is actually asking for. 
Now, if you do kind of a, a quick flyover of this passage, you kind of stand back and look at a panoramic picture of it, you kind of see two main requests happening, if you will. Paul is asking that they would have a discernment of God's will and then the power to perform that will. And if I'm going to be honest, it seems to me that that really should be the aim of all of our prayers. We should continually be asking that we would be filled with a continual and ever-growing knowledge of God's will for us. Let me tell you, to know God's will is one of the greatest things that we could obtain. Why aren't we asking for it more and more and more and more in our lives? I'll tell you why. Because we've lost the whole point of prayer. It seems to me that prayer has become more about us trying to get him to hear our will and not for us to hear his. That's what we've made prayer. Here should be the direction in our prayer. We should say, Father, what is your will? What is your will? We want to know it. The first object in prayer is not so much to speak to God as it is to listen to him. We have to train ourselves to listen to him and understand his will. And then when we hear and know his will, we pray for his will to be done. done. We say, God, may your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And unfortunately, I feel like our prayer is more of like, God, here's my will. I want you to change your will so that my will be done. And that's what we do with our prayer. Well, that's not the direction of Paul's prayer. He goes, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. We haven't stopped. And here's what we're asking. We're asking that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, notice that Paul prays that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will, but he doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, God, may they be filled with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and all understanding. In other words, this knowledge of God has to be transferred into our human situation that we find ourselves in life, our current life, okay, right here in the Lake Country area. And that's where wisdom and understanding come in. Knowledge is one thing. But knowing how to apply that knowledge to our everyday life, it's a whole other thing. It requires wisdom and understanding. And boy, I tell you, that's lacking today. You know, I was thinking about this. If if I could make an indictment about the current, you know, in a sense, situation that the American church finds itself in today, I, I would say this. I think that the American church is probably one of the most knowledgeable group of people on this earth when it comes to biblical knowledge. They do. With the least amount of wisdom and understanding as how to live that knowledge out. I mean, we do Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. We have apps. We read books. We go to conferences. We listen to hundreds of sermons. We listen to podcasts. We fill our mind with knowledge. We know so much about the Bible, but we lack the ability to live it out. We're masters of theologies, but we're failures in living. We're able to write and talk about eternal truths and insight, and yet we're helpless in applying them in everyday life. I mean, it's crazy to me how we can know the Bible inside and out, but we can't play a softball game without cussing and screaming at the other teammates or the ump. How's that even happen? If this so-called Christian faith that we hold on to can't even get us through a softball game, how's it gonna get us through life? It won't. 
We not only have to have knowledge, we must have wisdom and understanding in how to live out that knowledge in everyday life. Because if it doesn't, what is the point? Listen to me. A disciple of Jesus does not live in a vacuum. Guys, we don't live in a vacuum. We live in everyday life in this world, and we're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart from this world. In other words, live a godly life, and that's why Paul is praying this. He's saying, I'm praying that you would have the knowledge of God's will with all wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. As I said before, the knowledge of the will of God is joined with wisdom and understanding from God to be able to live out everyday life, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to be able to live a life fully pleasing to him. And look at that last phrase, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, those of you who've taken discipleship one, you know the story. We talk about the parable of the soils. And do you remember the par- what the par- point of that parable was all about? Do you remember? It was the necessity to bear fruit. Exactly. And the parable deals with all these different areas that seed lands on and it doesn't bear fruit. It falls in the path, doesn't bear fruit. It falls on rocky soil, doesn't bear fruit. It falls on the thorny soil, doesn't bear fruit. But the good soil, it did bear fruit. Bearing fruit is the whole point of the disciple's life. And what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, very simple. To bear fruit in our life is to more and more and more perfectly imitate Christ in our life. It's to look like Jesus. Now, notice the verse on the screen. Where and when are we to be bearing fruit? In every good work. And how many good works? How many does that leave out? None. That means even the little works we do. You know, I think so often we think that we can only bear fruit doing the big stuff. And we have this idea that bearing fruit is like, well, if I lead a Bible study, I'm really bearing fruit. If I teach at a conference, I'm really bearing fruit. If I lead a ministry, I'm really bearing fruit. And I think we forget what bearing fruit even means. It means looking and acting like Jesus, living out the fruit of the Spirit. And honestly, if you can't bear fruit in the little things, you'll never be able to bear fruit in the big things. If you can't bear fruit in a softball game, how will you bear fruit in a toxic toxic workplace? If you can't bear fruit when you get fouled playing basketball, then how are you gonna bear fruit with a neighbor who's a pain in your rear every day? If you can't bear fruit when somebody cuts you off in traffic, how will you bear fruit when you're persecuted and unfairly accused of something? You won't be able to. To bear fruit means to look like Jesus. It's to look and act like Jesus. So we must learn to bear fruit in every good work, even the small works. In fact, I would, often, I would actually say this, especially the small works. It's where it starts. And that comes through wisdom and understanding. Now, I want to point out something really quickly here at the end of this verse. Let me read it again. At the very end, it says, and increasing in the knowledge of of God. I have a quiz question for you, second service. What does it mean to increase or grow in the knowledge of God? Anybody? To increase in the knowledge of God means to experience more and more of what? 
eternal life. Let me unpack this again, and I, I, I feel like I say this every week. You know, I always touch on eternal life. But remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And what is eternal life? Knowing God. And what is knowing God? An interactive relationship with God. That's what knowing means. It's not just knowing him up here, but having an interactive relationship with God. So, back to my question about this verse. What does it mean to increase in the knowledge of God? Very simply, it means to grow closer and closer and closer in your interactive relationship with God. It means you get to know him more and more. It means that you start to experience more and more an eternal kind of life. Now, put that all together. Paul is praying that they would get to know the will of God and have wisdom and understanding on how to live out the will of God. And by doing so, they'd be living a life worthy of God and they would be living a life of bearing fruit in every single good work. In other words, they'd be looking like Jesus in every action they make and this would be pleasing to God. And as all this is happening, what they may not even realize is that they will be growing closer and closer to God in an interactive relationship. They'll be getting to know God more and more. In other words, experiencing eternal life. And guys, that's why Jesus came. So that we could experience eternal life. I mean, this prayer of Paul's is powerful. Let's keep going. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience, and patience with joy. Now, all this stuff we just talked about, it's, it's not humanly possible. Okay, as, as, as a simple human being, we cannot know the will of God. We cannot live out the will of God. We cannot bear fruit in every good work. It's humanly impossible. What do we need, second service, to live this out? God's Nobody's really confident with us. <laughs> God's power, right? We need God's power. Now, can anybody tell me, what is God's power working in us to accomplish what we could never do on our own? It's grace. So what do we need? We need grace. We need God's power to do this. Therefore, Paul prays that his friends may be strengthened with the power of God. You see, guys, the great problem in life is not so often to know what to do, the problem is to do it. For the most part, we're well aware in any given situation what we ought to do. Our problem is to be able to put that knowledge into action. What we need is power, God's power. In other words, we need grace. You see, guys, if God only told us what his will was and that was it, we'd be helpless and we'd be super frustrated. But that isn't the only thing he gives us. He not only tells us his will, he enables us to perform it. And that's grace. And grace is an amazing, beautiful thing. Now, how do we get this grace? How do we get this power? Anybody? We ask for it. Do you remember that verse we just looked at in Hebrews? And so let us come boldly to the very throne of God to receive his mercy and to find what? Grace. To help us in our times of need. How do we get this grace? We ask God for it. In other words, through prayer. Through prayer, we get God's will and we get God's power. That's a twofold greatest gift in, that we've been given. And that's what prayer is all about. And that's why Paul is praying this for the Colossian church. 
He wants that for them. God's will and God's power. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I love that phrase there. We're being strengthened according to whose glorious might? To God's, right? Now, let me ask you a simple question. How much power does God have? Oh, infinite, right? If we only knew the power of God, if we could only comprehend his glorious might. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing another letter to them. And he's discussing something very similar. He, he says, you know, I'm talking about God's power. And he's like, guys, I'm praying that you would know this power. I'm praying that you'd have an interactive relationship with God's power because you have no idea, Ephesians Church, what this amazing power is like. I mean, this power is the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. And guess what? It's available to you. Oh, Ephesians Church, I pray that you would know it. I pray that you would interact with it. And he's praying the same thing for the Colossae Church. I'm praying that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? So that you will have endurance and patience with joy. Now, those, those two words there, endurance and patience, are interesting. Let's kind of hit on that real quick. That word endurance in the Greek is hupomone. Now, what that means is patience in every circumstance. Now, honestly, hupomone is often used alone in a lot of the passages. And when it's used alone, it's translated as patience, okay? But when it's put in with the other Greek word I'm going to talk about in a second that's translated patience in this passage, it takes on a slightly different meaning. It means patience, but specifically in any circumstance, okay? Now, the word patience in this verse here, um, actually, the Greek word is makrothumia. I don't know how to pronounce it, but there's something like that. Now, that means patience with any kind of person. And let me tell you something. In this life, you will encounter two very difficult things. Very tough circumstances that are really hard to live with and very difficult people that are very hard to live with. Can I get an amen in here? Amen. All right. Circumstances and people can make life very hard. Paul knows that. Trust me, he knows that. But he also knows the answer to those two very difficult things. And the answer is to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance in any circumstance and patience with any person. With what? Joy. With joy. Circumstances and people will be the two hardest things that we encounter in our life. And God's power is able to help us patiently deal with both while experiencing joy. Whew, that's huge. Now, I'm just gonna be honest for a second. You know how I said earlier that we can know something logically, but we haven't yet because of we lack understanding and wisdom how to live it out in everyday life? Remember how I said that? This is an area that I'm struggling with that. I know it to be true, but I'm still learning how to see it played out in my life because, you know, I, I just lack this. There, there, this is where I'm just like, man, I need to learn this because there are people that still really get under my skin and irritate the tar out of me. There's no peace involved when I interact with these people. And there's a lot of circumstances that, man, they, I just dread them. I, I hate being in them. 
And so I have a lot to learn this, and one day I hope to experience the power of God in such a way that I can endure patiently with joy. And I pray that for everyone. What a great place to live, wouldn't it be? Amen? Let's keep going. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In the last three verses, we're going to see two main ideas that Paul is bringing out. Now, we could take an entire sermon on just these things, but we don't have the time to do that. So I need to explain as briefly and concisely as possible. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this more as we progress through this letter. But very quickly, here's what I want you to understand. Does everybody know what a Jew is? Do we know the Jewish people? Okay, yep. The, Jew, the Jews are a group of people. They are a race of people that we often say God chose. Yahweh chose them as his very own people. Um, he chose Abraham. He plucked Abraham out of the land of Ur, and he made a covenant with Abraham. And from Abraham came the Israelite nation, and they are called the Jews. Okay, They're God's chosen people. God chose them from out of the nations. Okay, Everybody with me? Okay. Now, have you heard of the word Gentile before? What is a Gentile? Everybody else, exactly. Anyone who's not a Jew. The Gentiles are the rest of the nations, okay? Gentiles were considered pagans. They worshiped other gods, not the God of Israel. They worshiped other gods. They were not God's chosen people like the Jews, okay? Everybody with me, okay? Now, I know that's incredibly simplistic, but, and there's so much more to it, but I think that's enough for us to understand these verses that we're looking at. Now, over the centuries, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Jews thought that they were this super special people because they were God's chosen people and they avoided the Gentiles. They didn't even want to be around Gentiles. They didn't touch Gentiles. They wouldn't talk to Gentiles. They wouldn't enter Gentiles' homes. They, I mean, they just didn't interact with them. They were unclean, dirty Gentiles. And they were God's chosen people, the Jews. Okay? In fact, even when I was in Israel in 2006, uh, we rented a Jeep. It was a big, big car. had two rows in the back. And uh, we were driving down the roads on a Sabbath day, and there was a bunch of Hasidic Jews that were standing aside, and they were hitchhiking. And I guess on a Sabbath, they're only allowed to walk a certain amount of steps, so they ran out of steps. And so they wanted to get hitchhiked, because if they could ride, that would, you know, they wouldn't be breaking the law. So we, we had plenty of room, so we stopped, and this you know, man and his son, they're there with the little curly, you know, what are these things, sideburns? We said, come on in, where do you need to go? So he gets, in, he gets in with his son into the car, and they're both sitting there, and so I'm kind of a conversationalist, so I turn like, hey, guys, how you doing? Where are you guys from? You live in Jerusalem? Are you father and son? You guys, no? So, what are you guys up to? <laughs> Nothing, they wouldn't talk, they just stare at me, just wouldn't talk. And I'm like, you guys know speaking English? I mean, do you guys not? Just stare at me. So afterwards, we, they finally knocked in the seat, and we let them off, and I turned to my driver. I'm like, what was that about? Why wouldn't they talk to us? And he goes, because you're a Gentile. They don't want to interact with a Gentile. I'm like, oh, well, that's nice. They'll get into a Gentile's car and drive for a while, but they won't talk to us? I just thought that was a little weird. But that's how it was. There was that separation, okay? A huge separation between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, like I said, they hated each other for most of the time. But what people didn't understand is that that was never God's heart. Remember in John 3.16, it says, it doesn't say, for God so loved the Jews, it says, for God so loved the world. 
And he came to save the world from the kingdom of darkness. And so the mystery that had been hidden since the creation of time was that God wasn't just choosing Jews. His plan was to rescue both Jews and Gentiles and create one big family. But nobody knew this until Jesus showed up on the scene and began to unpack it. So this was a huge surprise to everyone. And essentially, this is what Paul is telling the Colossae church. He's saying, my dear brothers and sisters, the Father's plan from the beginning was to qualify all of you Gentiles to be partakers of his inheritance as well. It's not just the Jews who get to partake in the inheritance, the Gentiles get to as well. The Father qualified you. Now, here's what you need to understand. No Jew earned it, and no Gentile earned it. It was an act of the Father. He qualified us. No one else qualified us. Now, I don't have time to explain what this inheritance is and all it entails, but just suffice it to say, the point that Paul is making is saying, hey, Gentiles, you're part of this inheritance too. God qualified you. Now, that would have floored the Jews, and it would have floored the Gentiles. This wasn't something anyone saw coming, but it was part of God's plan all the time. Okay? Now, not only did God make Jews and Gentiles partakers of his inheritance, he also did this. Check this out. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, once again, this, these two verses could be an entire sermon, but very quickly, what I want you to see is that the Father not only qualified us, he rescued us. You see, everyone, Jews and Gentiles, they were all over here in the kingdom of darkness. They were held captive by the kingdom of darkness. And so the Father, because he loved the whole world, he sent Jesus to come and pay our death penalty. He came to die for the sins of the world to pay the payment for our sins, okay? Now, I know there's a lot of theology right there. Don't worry, you don't have to fully grasp it right now. We're gonna unpack it more as we progress through Colossians. But what I want you to see is that both Jews and Gentiles were over here held in the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus came and he redeemed us. In other words, he he ransomed us. Does everybody know what a ransom is? It's to pay, you pay a price to be able to rescue them out of captivity. When my dad was kidnapped, they held him for ransom. They actually handed a ransom note at the mission home. They were saying, if you pay this amount of money, we'll release him. And that's what a ransom is. That's what redemption is. And tell me, second service, what was the price of that ransom for us? What was the price Jesus had to pay? His blood. Look in 1 Peter, it says, knowing that you were ransomed. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Guys, we were bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus. And this is the picture Paul is presenting. He's saying, listen, the Jews and the Gentiles, they were all over here held captive in the kingdom of darkness, bound by chains, slaves to sin. They were, I mean, it was ugly. Things were a mess. But God so loved the world, he came and he sent his son to this earth. And Jesus came and he taught and he lived and then he died on that cross and his blood was shed to pay that ransom for all these people held captive. And then the father not only qualified them for the inheritance, he then took these people who were ransomed, he took them out of the kingdom of darkness and placed them into the kingdom of light. Amen? 
Now, guys, here's the deal. The Father did that for each of us, but I want to make that even more personal. I want you to understand this. The Father did that for you. The Father did that for you. Ponder that for a second. Let that soak in. You know, guys, that's why we celebrate communion is to allow the reality of that incredible truth to soak into our hearts and minds so that we can dwell on it and meditate on it for a while. It's to ponder the Father's love for us, to ponder the incredible work that he accomplished through Christ to to rescue us. And he did that, Whitestone, because he loves us. Amen? And Paul wanted this little, small, little church to understand these great truths. So he prayed all the time for them that they would grasp this. What an amazing prayer to pray for this church. I love it. In fact, I would encourage us to pray these prayers for each other. Talk about powerful. Now, we're going to stop here. But as you know, we're going to take some time to quiet our minds, and I'm going to read the passage that we've covered so far. And each week, I'm going to read the previous week's passage and then the current week's passage, okay? And we're going to play some quiet music as I read, and I'm going to read it slowly and meditatively. And I would encourage you, just maybe even close your eyes and allow the Spirit of God to use his word to minister to you. Let him point out certain words or phrases that he wants you to focus on. So just go ahead, quiet yourself. Tyler, you can start playing the music. And I want you just to practice the presence of Jesus, and let's just give the Holy Spirit some space to speak to us. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We've heard of the love you have for all of God's people. We've heard of the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And this faith and hope and love, it came from hearing the true message. It came from the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, this gospel is bearing fruit. And it's growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. Since the first day you truly understood God's grace. And you learned this good news from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ. He has told us all about your love that comes from the Spirit of God. And for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding. 
wisdom and understanding that only the Spirit gives. Why do we pray this? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. So that you will please him in every way. So that you can bear fruit in every good work. So that you can grow in the knowledge of God. We pray that you will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So that you may have great endurance and great patience. We pray that you would give joyful thanks to the Father, the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. The Father who rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Oh, we pray that you would give joyful thanks to the Father who orchestrated your redemption and the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning because you are the one who orchestrated all of this. You're the one that took care of the details. You're the one that loved us so much, made it possible that we could be ransomed. And you qualified us to partake in your inheritance. Words can't even describe our gratefulness this morning, God. And I pray that we might apprehend these truths and live out these truths. God, may you show us your will and then grant us the power to live it out. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding because we know it is from your mouth that wisdom and understanding come. So we cry out to it from you. God, thank you for my Whitestone family. May you bless them this morning. May they experience you in a mighty way this week. May they be a light in a world of darkness. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Let it be so. Amen. If any of you would like to be prayed for, please come up to the corners. And there's some people who would love to do that with you. Otherwise, guys, have a great week. I love you so very, very much. And let's go be Jesus to the world. Amen.